Thank you. You may be seated. Well, as I said, we're beginning a brand new series today called Entrusted. And the messages over the next three weeks will take a little bit of a different shape than normal. Yes, we'll be walking through particular passage of Scripture, 2 Timothy chapters 1 and 2 to be precise, but we'll also be illustrating what we're talking about by the lives of people from church history. So today, as I said, we're going to be looking kind of at the life of William Tyndale. So let's pray and ask for the Lord's help in the next few minutes. Father, we do thank you for who you are and what you've done. I pray that our hearts would be freshly made aware of your work on our behalf. Lord, we need you. I pray you would deeply encourage your people from this passage and from the life of Tyndale today. Lord, open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things from your law. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Title of the message today is simply Hold Fast. In 480 BC, the famous battle of Thermopylae was fought. This is when the Persians uh, decided to invade Greece under the leadership of Xerxes I. The Persians came with a force of somewhere between 120,000 and 300,000. Historians disagree exactly how much. It was a huge army. And they wanted to storm into the homeland of Greece. But there was really only one path to get there, known as the Pass of Thermopylae. And there, King Leonidas of Sparta led a force of 7,000 men to the narrow pass to try to buy time and hold their ground. For two days, with his 7,000 men, Leonidas held off the Persians, and then they began flanked, and Leonidas sent all but 300 of his men away, and fought to the bridge, was rewarded with death. But they held off the Persians for another day, which allowed the navy to retreat and Athens to be evacuated, and a year later, because the city was saved, the Grecians were able to conquer the Persians because of that. Well, the story of the 300 has been lionized in movies and poems and books and all kinds of things. But what it highlights is a true and profound reality, namely this. There are some times when it is critical to hold your ground. Bring that up this morning because I believe that's really what Paul is saying to, to Timothy in this passage of Scripture. Remember, 2 Timothy is essentially Paul's swan song. He's getting ready to die and pass off the scene, and he's writing a letter to his beloved ministry protege by the name of Timothy. This is a man who Timothy has invested in, or Paul has invested in, and poured into, and he wants to write him some final words of instruction about his ministry going forward, and Paul urges Timothy to hold fast. Not in a military sense like King Leonidas, but in a spiritual sense. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse number 13. Look at what it says. Hold on to the pattern of sound teaching that you have heard from me in the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul is telling Timothy, don't give up an inch of ground on the message that I have taught you. Don't move on. Don't budge. Don't let it go. 
hold fast. I think this is a really good illustration from the life of William Tyndale as well. If you don't know anything about William Tyndale, he was born in 1492 in a place with too many letters in England. It's Gloucestershire. There we go. I pronounced it right. Gloucestershire, but it looks like Gloucestershire to me. It's like Worcestershire sauce, you know? Gloucestershire, England. And he was an educated, Oxford-educated scholar, and he is best known, get this, for translating single-handedly the Bible from Greek and Hebrew into English. So you just hear that, and you don't understand the import of that statement initially. Because probably if you go to your house, you probably have dozens of Bibles laying around. You know, on your phone, I mean, I don't know how many versions of the Bible I have available on my phone in English. I mean, dozens of versions of the Bible in languages that I can read available to me at any time and any place. But we have to remember in 1490, the time when Tyndale was around, this simply was not the case. In fact, in the country of England, the Bible was only in Latin. Only in Latin. And here's the thing, that wouldn't be a big deal except for no one could read Latin. It was only available in this language that no one, including the priests, could not read. Now, now think about this for a minute. If I were to say to Rod, hey, Rod, you are responsible for teaching people's God's word. Here is a Bible that you cannot read. How effective would you be in your task? You'd be utterly Unaffective. And just to illustrate this fact, one of Tyndale's contemporaries and friend by the name of John Hooper actually took a survey. I find this is amazing. Like back in the 1400s, they're taking surveys. He took a survey of 311 priests, and here's what he found. Nine of them did not know that there were Ten Commandments. 33 did not know where the Ten Commandments were located in the Bible. Ten could recite no portion of the Lord's Prayer. And 30 did not know that the Lord's Prayer was spoken by Jesus in the first place. The fact of the matter is, is the state of the country of England was in disrepair because the Bible was utterly inaccessible to people. What is more, not only was the Bible not in the common tongue, get this, it was illegal to translate it into the common tongue. So even if you had the wherewithal, to take the Bible and translate it into English, it was deemed as a crime punishable by death to do so. Here's what the Archbishop of Canterbury at that time, Thomas Arundel, said about translation. It is a dangerous thing to translate the text of Holy Scripture out of one tongue into another. For in the translation, the same sense is not always easily kept. You know what? That's a true statement. Translation is hard. However, notice the implication that he draws from that. We therefore decree and ordain that no man hereafter by his own authority shall translate any text of scripture into English or any other tongue and that no man can read any such book in part or in the whole. The penalty of breaking this decree was death, usually by burning at the stake and dozens, if not hundreds, were burnt for doing so. During the time of Tyndale, the Bible was completely locked away. 
It's hard to illustrate this any better than actually the image that is up on the screen. This is a woodcut from medieval churches where what do you notice about the Bible? It is literally chained to the altar. Tyndale's desire in translating the Bible from Latin, which no one could read, to go back to the Greek and Hebrew originals and translate it into English was burning with a passion to unchain the scripture, both literally and figuratively. He literally wanted to unchain the Bible to get it into people's hands. Why? Because Tyndale had a conviction that the Bible was, or the gospel, the gospel, the work of Jesus Christ on behalf of sinners that is revealed in the scripture is meant to be unleashed. The gospel is meant to be unleashed. Listen to me. The work of Jesus is not for the erudite or the elite. The work of Jesus is not for the social upper class. The work of Jesus is not for only those who have degrees and letters behind their name. The work of Jesus is for anyone and everyone who would ever dare to believe it. The gospel is not a elitist message. It is a message for anyone who is a sinner and that's all of us. Look, the gospel is good what? News, not good information. What do you do with good information? You just, it's good information to have. But what do you do with good news? You proclaim that bad dog. Good news is meant to be proclaimed. To quote the great theologian, Dr. Seuss, the gospel is for here and there. The gospel is for everywhere. And that's what drove Tyndale to say, I must translate the Bible into a language that my people can understand. Which leads me to my point this morning. We must hold fast to the gospel. I think that's what drove Tyndale. It's what drove the Apostle Paul. It's what was meant to drive Timothy. And it's meant to drive us today. Holding fast to the gospel is as important for us as it was for Timothy. It is as important for us as it was for Tyndale. Here's why. Why do we need this reminder to hold fast to the gospel? Because holding fast to the gospel is not always popular. In fact, it's seldom popular. You say, well, I don't believe that. Pause. Let me do a little thought exercise for you. If you have some sort of social media account let me encourage you to think about how this might go. Why don't you go on your social media and post something very clearly about the exclusivity of Christ? That is, that Jesus and Jesus alone is the way to salvation. Or why don't you maybe post something about um, the reality of every, every man's sinful condition? That we are all broken because of sin and unable to save ourselves. Or why don't you go on there and post something about the impending judgment of God. That Jesus has the right and the might to bring every human being into account. And see how popular you are by that. You see, just because we live in a quote-unquote nation that has been Christian at one point or another doesn't mean that holding fast to the gospel is easy or popular in our culture today. There is a movement 
There is a movement in our culture that is saying, hey, these truths revealed to us in the scripture should not be held. When you hold to them, you are bigoted, you are narrow, you are out of touch with reality, you are out of date, you are for a bygone generation. And that is why these words from Paul to Timothy are timeless. Hold fast. Hold fast to the gospel that was entrusted to Timothy. That same message that Paul took to Timothy, that same message that drove William Tyndale to say, I must translate the Bible into the English language, is the same message that you and I have been entrusted with today. We are entrusted with a gospel and we must hold our ground. You say, Ryan, well, how do I do that? What does it look like for me to hold fast to the gospel in 21st century America? Let me give you three ideas, hopefully arising from this text of scripture and illustrated by the life of William Tyndale, how to hold fast to the gospel. First thing is this, hold fast through the Bible. How do you hold fast to the gospel? You hold fast through the Bible. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse number 13. Hold on to the pattern of sound teaching. See that phrase there? that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit through the Holy Spirit who lives in us. So you notice the two commands there that Paul gives Timothy. First, he says, hold fast to what? What do you see? That's oh, not up there. Go back one. Hold fast to the sound teaching. Then go to verse number 14 and guard the good deposit. Okay, so two things. He's saying, Timothy, listen, hold fast to the sound teaching, guard the good deposit. Put your thinking caps on here. Where was Timothy to find the sound teaching and the good deposit that Paul had given him? In the where? It's in the Bible. Paul, in his ministry with Timothy, was not just spewing wisdom. These are good thoughts for life. He was not Dr. Phil. He was not Oprah. He was a man of the book. And he was saying, listen, Timothy, I I've taught you these things. You need to hang on to these things. These things that you've heard from the Bible. Now, listen, Paul might have been saying more than that in these verses, Hold fast to everything that you've heard of me. He might be saying more, but can I tell you something? He's not saying less. He might be saying, yeah, watch my life and the, my example and some of the other things. Those are important too, but he is not saying less than hold on to the Bible. How do you know that, Ryan? Well, because throughout Paul's ministry to Timothy, he emphasized the impact that the Bible had on Timothy's life. Look at it, 2 Timothy again. Paul's words to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter three. But as for you, Timothy, Continue, continue in what you've learned and firmly believed. You know those who taught you, your mom and your grandma. That's who taught Timothy. You know your mom and your grandma, they taught you. And you know that from infancies, you have known the sacred, what's it say? It was slow, slow there. You have known the sacred. You have known the sacred. Scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Skip again, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse number 1. I solemnly charge you 
before God and Christ Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead. And because of his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. And then finally, as Paul's getting ready to pass off the scene, remember, he thinks he's going to die here real soon. He writes this note to Timothy. I love this personal element. And he says, when you come, bring the cloak I left in Troas with Carpus, as well as the scrolls. I love this last phrase, especially the parchments. Paul's basically saying, bring my Bible. Bring my Bible, Timothy. You know, you know how much I love the Word of God. You know how much I've shared with you from the Word of God. The simple idea is this, that we see in the example of Paul to Timothy, the worth of the Word is incalculable. You cannot overestimate the value of God's Word. This was an idea that burned in Tyndale's heart. After he graduated from Oxford, he went on to be a tutor or a kind of a governor in a noble person's house. So he would go and he would teach their children. And because the nobleman had a, like a high standing, there would be people who would regularly come to dinner. Now remember during this time, Tyndale is, he's studying the Bible in Greek and Hebrew. Nobody else like can even read the Latin. He's studying in the Greek and Hebrew, and he's becoming impressed by what the Bible says and what it doesn't say. Because in that day, nobody's really teaching the word of God. So these visiting people would come to dinner, including visiting clergy, and Tyndale would begin to debate them, talk to them about, where do you get that? Where do you learn that? Well, I'm learning in the Gospel of John that it says this and not that. So he's going through, and one time this visiting clergy member got so angry at Tyndale for kind of thwarting him at every turn, he in heat said these words, we were better to be without God's law than the Pope's law. Hearing the, this, Tyndale infuriated responded, I defy the Pope and all his laws. And then he added, if God spare me life, ere many years, listen to this, I would cause a boy that drives the plow to know more of the scripture than you. And that's what he did. So from that time on, Tyndale began to work on learning to translate from Greek and Hebrew into the English language so that people, even boys that drive the plow, could understand the Bible. Eventually, Tyndale gave his life for this cause. So what drove all this passion we see? What drove this eventual sacrifice of being willing to be killed for doing so? I think Tyndale understood a fundamental reality that we all must grasp today. The written word is meant to reveal to us the living word. Let me say that again. The written word reveals the living word. Listen carefully right now. At Gospel Hope Church, we love the Bible. Rod and I tell Bible jokes. Nobody gets them, but we think they're funny. We love the Bible. But can I tell you something? We don't worship the Bible. We love it. We love it with our whole hearts, but we don't worship the Bible. We are not Bible-dolaters. The Bible 
as precious as it is, is a means to an end. We love the Bible because the Bible gets us to Jesus. The Bible is like lenses through which you can see the Savior. Or if I could use an even better analogy, the Bible is like eyes. And if you gouge my eyes out, I have no other way of seeing. Am I thankful for my eyes? Yes. But really, I love my eyes because my eyes give me sight. And in the same way, we love the Bible we should be willing to die for the Bible because the Bible gets us to Jesus. The reason God gave us the written word is so that we would have eyes to see the living word. Apart from the Bible, we cannot see the Savior. This is something that the Lord Jesus himself told us. You pour over the scriptures, he said to his enemies. You pour over them, you study them, because in them you think you have eternal life. And here's the reality, they were right. They were right. The enemies of Jesus thought that in the scripture, that if you studied them carefully, you could have eternal life. That's true. But they missed the central figure of the scripture. And Jesus says, look, You pour over the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life, but here's what you missed. They testify about me. Jesus is essentially saying, y'all should love the Bible because you love me. I want to say something, maybe it's not controversial, maybe it is controversial, but it's simply this. You cannot be gospel-centered without being Bible-centered. It's impossible. You cannot be gospel-centered without being Bible-centered. Maybe this seems self-evident to you, but there is a tendency in our culture to say something like this. I like Jesus. He's great. But the Bible, mm, not so much. It's narrow. It's restrictive. I don't like some of the things it says. It's hard. I don't understand it all. Jesus, I'm team Jesus. Team Bible, not really. Here's the problem. The place where Jesus has revealed himself is in the Bible. Jesus, he's a particular kind of person. There are things that are true of him and there are things that are not true of him. You are not free to make up, as Depeche Mode says, your own personal Jesus. He is who he is, and the place where he has told us where he is, is in the Bible. You are not free to say, I love Ryan. He's awesome. Who's Ryan? He's that 6'4 guy, black guy from Mississippi. False, false, and false. That's not me. You can be in love with that version of me, but it's not a real person. And you can be in love with all your versions of Jesus that you want, but there is only one Jesus and he has revealed himself in the Bible. 
You are not free to make up who he is, to craft him in your own design. The moment you step out of the scriptural Jesus, you make up a figment of your imagination and you worship him. Why must we hold fast to the Bible? Because the Bible is the only thing that gets us to Christ. Brothers and sisters, if we are to hold, if we are to hold to the gospel, we must be people of the book. There is absolutely no way to be faithful to Jesus without being faithful to his word. Those are one and the same. So if we're to hold fast to the work of Christ on behalf of sinners, we do it by holding fast through the word of God, the Bible, the scripture. That's not cool. It's not cool. It's not popular. It's not in vogue. But it's truth, and it is how God has chosen to reveal himself. You know, it's no coincidence that the Bible, we call the Bible what? What's the term we use most of the time? The word of God. What does a word do? The way that you know a person is by them giving you words, revelation about themselves. Like you can know certain things about me, by looking at me, but you can't really know me until what? Till I self-disclose by using words. It is no coincidence that we call this book the Word of God. And then in John chapter 1, here's what the Lord himself says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Who is that Word? Jesus the written word exists to reveal the living word. You want to know God the way you know him is through a book. We can't make apologies for that. That is the reality and how God has chosen to reveal himself to his people. We must hold through the Bible too. How do we hold fast? We hold fast in spite of opposition. Look again at the text, verse 15. You know, Paul speaking to Timothy, that all those in the province of Asia have deserted me, including Phagellus and Hermogenes. Here, Paul is reminding Timothy that sometimes holding fast will cost you something. Here Paul is, remember, he's in prison right now. It's cost him his freedom. And also what's happened, his friends, these two guys who apparently were precious to him, he, he names them by name. He's like, you know these guys, Timothy, these were our boys. They left me too. I'm all by myself. Please bring my cloak and bring my Bible. Timothy, I need you to come. I'm lonely. I'm sad. Following Jesus has cost me something. Paul is reminding us that the pathway to following Jesus is not always rainbows and ponies, friends. We must remember that commitment to Christ is seldom comfortable. Commitment to Christ is seldom comfortable. If you are committed to holding fast to the gospel, you're going to be swimming upstream a lot of the time. You're going to be going against the current. Now, God will give you strength to do so. But you must recognize that following Jesus is not how to win friends and influence people. It will not make you popular. It will make you radically 
unpopular at times to follow after Jesus. Tyndale's life illustrates through this once again. Once Tyndale determined to translate the Bible in English, he, he did what you would naturally probably think to do. He said, I'm going to ask the church and the king to allow me to do so. So he writes them a letter and says, please, I don't care if it's me, I don't care who does it, but will you allow a translation of the Bible into English to be circulated? Printing press is brand new, and he's like, man, we need to get the word to the people. He was flatly denied. In fact, the moment he shared that, he became a fugitive. They sought to kill him, so he ran from the king, and he ran from the church, and in 1524, Tyndale left England for the first and last time. Never came back. Never made it back home. The rest of his days, he lived on the run. For the next 12 years, Tyndale lived as a fugitive and did his work um, clandestine. As he finished translating portions of the Bible, they would take the sheets and they would put them between sheets of cloth and smuggle them back into England. And in that way, the word of God began to get disseminated. And that was hard for Tyndale to never be able to go back home again, to never be able to see his family and friends. But the hardest thing about it was what happened to those who worked with him. Tyndale's closest friend, John Frith, was arrested in London and tried by Thomas More and burned alive on July 4th, 1531, because he possessed a copy of the English New Testament. Richard Bayfield, the man who ran the ships that smuggled the Bible back into England, was betrayed and arrested and burned. The bishop who burned him actually said when they killed him, I'm glad he is now in hell because he will meet his friend Tyndale there soon. Dozens of people were executed for quoting portions of the Bible in English. One group of men was killed because they taught their children a portion of the Lord's Prayer in the English language. Time and time again, people were executed and burned alive and tortured and imprisoned. The cost was great. Tyndale even offered to turn himself in if the king would allow an English Bible to be published. Here's what he said. I assure you, if it would stand the king's most gracious pleasure to grant only a bare text of scripture to be put forth among his people, like as is put forth among the subjects of the emperor in these parts and other Christian princes, be it of the translation of what person soever shall please his majesty, whoever can do it, doesn't matter who, I shall immediately make faithful promise never to write more and not to abide two days in these parts after the same, but immediately to return unto his realm and there most humbly submit myself at the feet of his royal majesty, offering my body to suffer what pain or torture, yea, what day, death his grace will allow so that this translation will be obtained. He said, you can kill me, just translate the Bible. And then he said, until that time, Till that translation is authorized, I will abide the asperity of all chances, whatsoever shall come, and endure my life in as many pains as it able to bear suffer and pain. In other words, you don't give us the Bible, I will keep translating. Huh. And would to God that we would be people like that. People with soft, gracious hearts. Did you hear the tone in that letter? Kind soft, open hearts, but a backbone of steel. 
who says, it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter how hard it is. I will hold fast in the face of persecution, in the face of opposition. I will not let go. Not holding to silly things, not stupid preferences or little goofy traditions that we hold on to, but what Tyndale is holding on is to the Bible. And why is he holding on to the Bible? Because the Bible gives us the Jesus. And he says, for that, I cannot let go. I will not come home. It can be tempting for us to think that if something is hard, it's not God's will. Listen, the church in the United States of America has endured a season, a long season, of no external persecution in terms of governmental or anything. And for that, we should be thankful. But sometimes we get numb because that's not the case. It weakens our resolve to things. It weakens our ability to stand. I'm not praying for a season of persecution. I certainly am not a masochist. And yet we need to recognize that even in the midst of freedom, we need to still hold on to the truth. Hard does not equal bad. We need to divorce those two ideas from our mind. Hard is sometimes the best. Let me ask you a question. Was it hard for Joseph to forgive his brothers? Yes or no? Was it hard for Isaiah to keep on preaching when no one listened? Was it hard for Daniel to go to the lion's den? Was it hard for Jesus to go to the cross? Yes, 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 and yes, and yet. Were all of those things God's will? Yes, hard does not equal bad. Sometimes hard equals best. And we need to be people that say, you know what? It's not the opposition that determines God's will. It's God's word that determines God's will. We don't determine what God is saying by going, let me get on my phone and see what popular opinion is right now. We determine God's will by getting in the book, saying, Lord, what have you said to us? And regardless, come hell or high water, I will do your will. It's not comfortable, it's not popular. I won't gain friends and influence people. I won't be well-liked, I won't get a promotion, but I will be in the center of the will of God. As our pastor friend, Brian Lorette said, sometimes opposition, opposition is often confirmation for the mission. Sometimes we only know when something is God's will, when there's pushback. Let's be people who, like Paul will say in a few verses, can do this, share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. You know, the Bible has rich metaphors for followers of Jesus. Wonderful things, like we're God's children. Isn't that sweet? Wonderful truth. We're God's sheep. He's our shepherd, sheep. We're joint heirs with Christ. Oh, it's a wonderful, beautiful truth. And we're also soldiers. His army. And sometimes when you're in the army, when you're in a war, things aren't comfortable. But we must embrace holding fast to the gospel means holding fast in the face of opposition at times. Number three, how do we hold fast to the gospel? We hold fast through the Bible. We hold fast in spite of the opposition, and we hold fast in hope. Remember, Paul's in prison. 
He's saying, my friends have left me. But then he concludes this section with the word of hope. Look at what it says. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse number 16. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he diligently searched for me and found me. May the Lord grant that he obtained mercy from him on that day. You know very well how much he ministered to me at Ephesus. So think about this for a minute. So in spite of Paul's bleak situation, in spite of the fact that he's in prison, that his friends have left him, and the opposition around him, he knows that his death is coming soon, he still sees the hand of God at work in the midst of that difficulty. And he's actually able to pray for his friend in the midst of it. Oh God, thank you for my friend Onesiphorus. Bless him, be with him, pour out your mercy on him. Here's the thing, the gospel, when we hold on to it, we've got to remember it's fundamentally a message of hope. The gospel is a hopeful message. Yes, yes, life is often hard. Yes, opposition to Christ is fierce. Yes, the devil is real. Yes, our hearts are frequently weak. Yes, yes, and yes, but we can be still people of hope. Here's why. Because the gospel is good news. It changes everything. When you embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, listen, it means God's not dead. He is at work. He is moving. It means that our pain is not pointless. When we suffer, we don't suffer for nothing. It means that our mission will be accomplished. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It means our efforts, every effort you make for the kingdom of God and the extension of his reign means something. I can work all week and feel like I did nothing, but that's false. Because God moves in a mysterious way, and even when I don't see it, he's working. Even when I don't feel it, he's working. Our efforts mean something. Finally, the gospel reminds us that our king reigns. We're on the winning team, y'all. We're not just hanging on, game's almost over, and, you know, we're down by two, and we're probably going to lose. The game looks like it's almost over. We're down by 35 and we're gonna win. Because our king has a plan. He's like the ultimate last minute substitution that turns everything around. We need to be people filled with hope. Paul was able in the prison, not like woe is me, everyone's left me. And then he's like, Timothy, make sure you go talk to Onesiphorus. Man, that brother encouraged me. Oh, may God be merciful. That doesn't sound like a hopeless person to me. That sounds like a person who is holding fast to the gospel and remembers that he is on the right side of history. Again, Tyndale illustrates this for us. When he translated about 75% of the Bible, whole New Testament, a good portion of the Old Testament, he was working in the city of Antwerp. And there, through an act of duplicity, he was betrayed and captured and taken into custody by the Roman Catholic authorities. After a trial 
and long days of debate, he was imprisoned and eventually executed. First, he was tied to the stake and given the courtesy of being strangled because he was once a priest, so they strangled him first. And then they burned him. But before Tyndale was killed, um, and this is recorded in the Fox's Book of Martyrs, he said one final hope-filled prayer. Lord, open the King of England's eyes. So in the midst of all that despair, they got me. They put me in prison by myself. My friends are dead. My work seems to be done. They're about to put his hands to put their hands to his neck and end his life. And he offers up a prayer. Not God save me, but God accomplish your mission that every tongue will bow, every tongue will confess and knee will bow at the lordship of King Jesus. Open the King of England's eyes. Let the people have the word of God so they can know the living word. Eventually God would answer Tyndale's request. We're proof of it today. Three years after he died, Henry VIII allowed the Miles Coverdale translation to be circulated in England. Then 70 years after that, Tyndale's martyrdom, the King James Version called for good reason, the authorized version of the Bible was translated in 1611 and would be published not only throughout England, but throughout the entire world. Here's what's astounding. We call it the King James Bible. We might as well call it the William Tyndale Bible. Of the parts that Tyndale was able to translate before he was killed, remember, 75% of the Bible he got done, about 80% of what we have in the King James and about 70% of what we have in the English Standard Version is still Tyndale. Somehow, in the providence of God, this man was able to create a translation of scripture by himself from, English, from Greek and Hebrew into English that would last for 600 years. If you've ever said phrases like this, my brother's keeper, knock and the door will be open to you. A moment in time, seek and you will find. Judge not that you be not judged. Let there be light, the powers that be, the salt of the earth, a law unto yourself. It came to pass, the signs of the time. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You owe that to William Tyndale. Those are his words. Translated 600 years ago. What is more, many scholars and linguists believe that Tyndale had more influence on the English language than Shakespeare. He's more quoted today than Shakespeare. God did extraordinary things through this man's life because he suffered in one sense in hope. Even in his dying breath, he didn't give up and that should fill us with hope. So where does this leave us? Let me close with just two very simple points of application from 2 Timothy and from the life of William Tyndale. I think the first implication this teaches us is this. The Bible is precious. How dare we not read it?
How dare we treat it glibly? The Bible is the written word to get us to the living word and people down through the ages, Paul, Timothy, Tyndale, were willing to suffer and die for those words. I love the story of Jesus and his disciples. Jesus teaches some hard stuff, right? And the crowds that were following Jesus all go away. And Peter, in a rare moment of brilliance, speaks up. Jesus says, hey, y'all going too? And Peter says, Master, where would we go? You have the words of life. Brothers and sisters, you don't need a face-to-face -face encounter with Jesus to have the words of life because God in his mercy has given us the words of life that came from the word of life in a book on your phone in your pocket. The Bible is so precious. Let's not be people who love Harry Potter or Star Wars more than the word of God. I love great literature. I read like nuts, but there is no book that is more precious than the word of God. Do you read it? Do you study it? Do you think on it? Don't be more acquainted, more familiar with the most recent Netflix show than you are with the living word of God. God have mercy on us. We've been so distracted by these lesser things that we don't love the Bible. So we read the Bible. Just read the Bible. I want to give you a very clear point of application. We have a Bible reading plan. You've never read through the Bible before. Can I beg you to read it? I mean, that's a starting point. Maybe some of you need to do more, but that's just the very least. Will you read the Bible? Just commit before the Lord, you know what? Every day, I'm going to eat. I'm going to eat the food that actually satisfies. No Bible, no breakfast. Let's be people who say we love God's word and show by our action. If you don't want to do the technological version, we have some sheets out here that would encourage you to do so. And listen, if you're like, Ryan, I've been reading the Bible, but man, I'm convicted. I need to get into the Word. Will you come see Pastor Rod or myself or Pastor Eddie or one of the elders? We will help you get your hands around the Bible in a more powerful way. Man, let's be people that bleed Scripture. They said of John Bunyan, if you prick him anywhere, his blood was Bibline. Oh, I want that to be me. I just leak the Bible. Scripture-saturated people. Where are the next Tyndales going to come from? They're going to come from people who are saturated, not sprinkled, saturated in the Scripture. And just you ring them out and out comes the Word of God. Let's be that type of person. Amen? You come in Gospel Hope, you might not know much about us, but you better know we love God's Word because we love the Savior. Two. Not only is the Bible precious, but your life has purpose. That's what this story reminds us. Listen, Tyndale, he had unique gifts. I mean, when you look down through history, I mean, they're freakish in one sense. This guy is so gifted linguistically. And then the other part of him that sometimes we miss, you know that weird town I told you about? There's significance in it. Gloucestershire. There we go. Okay. 
You know what that was the seed of in England? Cloth making. And you know how they smuggled the Bibles into England? In between sheets of cloth. Well, why do I bring that up? Because God gifted Tyndale, right? He gave him these skills, these unique linguistic gifts. God gave Tyndale a story. Had him born and raised in Gloucester. And then he brought those things together with all of his passions and he used his life in ways that he couldn't have imagined. Now, I don't know if we got any linguists in here, but I know God has gifted everyone in this room in some significant way. You may not have the story of William Tyndale, but you got a story, right? You got passions, you got, you got convictions, you got skills, and God can take that unique mix of gifts and passions and skills and experience and launch you out and use you for his glory. Tyndale could not have imagined that 600 years later we'd be telling his story and challenged by it, that the word of God would be in the United States of America. I mean, that wasn't even a thought at that time. And yet God used him profoundly. God can use you profoundly in the same way if you'll just leverage all that you are for all that he is. Let's be people that live our lives for something meaningful. Not just a blip, not to be comfortable, but something meaningful, the kingdom of God to the ends of the earth. And God has uniquely gifted you in a way that he hasn't gifted me or Pastor Rod or any of our leaders. God has gifted you uniquely and given you a story. Will you just put your yes on the table and say, God, you do whatever you want. Here's a blank check. And I will leverage my life for your kingdom and your glory. You might hear this. You know, like, Ryan, I, I want my life to count like that. But frankly, when you start talking about opposition and being unpopular and the suffering, oh, man, I don't know if I can do that. I mean, I get nervous just having to like introduce myself at a party. How am I supposed to stand up and hold fast when the opposition is stacked against me? Let me give you good news. Look at John chapter 10. My sheep, Jesus speaking, hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish. If you've trusted in the work of Jesus, he's got you. Let me go further. And no one. You know what no one means in the Greek? No one. No one. Not yourself, not the devil of hell will be able to snatch them out of my hand. Keep going. Here's what it says. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hands. You know, sometimes when I'm crossing the street, well, this happened a few weeks ago, um, crossing the street and, and I have one of my smaller children with me. We get ready to go across the street and, and what do I say to them? Hold my hand. And they, you know, obediently, usually, put their hand in there. And, and we start going. 
But here's the thing. I'm not dependent on their grip. Because when I'm going across the street, I'm going to tell you something. I'm not letting those little ones go. Because they are mine. And if their grip gets weak, I'm not tired. I can do this all day. I will not let them go. And if that's the promise of an earthly father, listen to the word of the father. Who says, Jesus has got one hand. The father's got the other one, or they both got the same hand. I don't care what imagery you have. Here's the point. God's grip on you is greater than your grip on him. And he has never dropped anyone. So if you're scared, good. If you're a little bit nervous, good. Trust in the hand of the father and say, God, you got to help me cross this street. Because there are cars coming. And I don't know if I can hang on. How do we hold fast? How do we hold fast to the gospel? Frankly, we hang on as best we can to Jesus and we let him hold fast to us. And he won't let you go. Amen? I'm going to pray, but I I, I do want us, I do want to invite us to respond this morning. So prayer team, if you could make your way to the back right now. We're going to sing and worship the Lord right now, but maybe the Lord just wants to do something in our church right now, in your life. And maybe you're convicted this morning. You're saying, you know what? I just am not a person of the book like I want to be. And I just need to call out to God that he would give me a hunger and thirst for the word. That I would long for the word like I long for my morning coffee. That I would long for the word like a person dying of thirst in the desert. That I would long for the word like I long for a snack at bedtime. That I would hunger for the word of God. I want to be that type of person. Maybe that's what the Lord's doing in your heart. Or maybe God is calling you into some area of sacrifice and discomfort. And you're like, God, I'm scared. But I know what you want me to do. I just don't want to do it, frankly. I need your courage, and I need to remember that you've got me more than I got you. Can we do business with God today? Can we be a church that just responds to God's word? I don't think that, like, I'm, like, the best preacher in the world, but I hope that, like, I brought the meal to the table today. And I just want to invite us to respond. There's nothing magical about getting back and praying with the prayer team. You can make your decision in your seat just as well. But there is sometimes in our own hearts and minds to say, man, I just need to seal this deal before the Lord. Make a conscious act to say, Lord, here's what I'm saying to you. Will you speak to me? Will you encourage me? So we're going to stand and sing. And as we do, why don't you go back and pray with somebody on the prayer team. Let the Lord move in your heart. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. It is life. It is a hammer. It is a fire. It is light. We thank you that in it we can see Jesus. We thank you for Paul and his willingness to suffer for your word. We thank you for William Tyndale who you used to get us the English Bible, Lord. We just bless you for that, that we have the Bible today because people suffered for it. 
Lord, I pray that we would be people who know that the Bible is precious and that our life has purpose. Lord, be with the person right now that needs to respond to you in some significant way. I pray we would be honest. We would repent where we need to repent. We would believe what we need to believe. Lord, help us to move towards you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Let's stand on our feet and worship. Go see the prayer team. Seek the Lord.